Our reading for the scripture or for the sermon this morning comes to us from uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4. Please turn with me to Hebrews 4 as we look at verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they did not benefit from did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, and as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again he points a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the word that already was quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Almighty and living God, help us so to hear your holy word this morning that we might truly understand it, and that in our understanding we might believe, and by believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning we're going to explore the, the biblical concept of rest. That is found in the letter of Hebrews chapter 4. As Christians, we understand that there is no rest apart from Christ. There is no rest for the soul apart from Christ. And Augustine in the 4th century communicated this this truth in a really eloquent manner in his confessions. He says this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest. In thee. While we have an answer, the uh, rest of the world continues to search for this rest, for this peace, for this meaning of life. One of the greatest French minds who has a really, uh, really awesome name, uh, Blaise Pascal, noted this worthless endeavor. He saw really well meaning men and women who were, uh, tried to search in vain for true happiness, and they searched in relationships, and they searched in their belongings and in their power. And Pascal noted that these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, God himself. So this morning we are going to observe what it means to live in God's rest. Right? That's, a, that's a really interesting concept. This concept of rest seems to be really nice, seems to be uh, enjoyable, comfortable. And while, that tr- while that's true, it's, it's important not just to contemplate on this idea of, of, of such a reality, but to remember that we should ground our thoughts, that we should ground our ideas and, and ground our reality in the Word of God. What does Scripture have to say about rest? 
Right? What is rest? Who is this rest for? And, and how am I going to find it? There are many preachers who will stand up behind a pulpit that looks sort of like this one today <clears throat> all over the world. And they're going to tell their con- congregations all sorts of things about finding rest. Some might claim to, to have five easy steps for, for you, to you to find a better marriage. Many ministers will give a list of three points on how you can achieve this great career goal or, or that one. I was talking with a high school student of mine uh, from a few years back in my youth group, and um, he, there was a rather infamous televangelist that was coming to town. And, and it was coming to Kerrville, and, and, and specifically this guy was going to preach uh, in his church. And so he went to see this man speak, and, and he called me on his long drive home to tell me all about it. <clears throat> so apparently there's this guy out there right now <clears throat> claiming that God has told him that he needs to charter a private boat, uh, and he's going to go to the Bahamas. And then he's got to fly in a plane to Paris uh, to share God's news with people around the world. And this guy rode, a really well-known guy, rode all the way from Louisiana across Texas in a really fancy limousine to deliver this message. And his trip to the Bahamas and his trip to France are going to cost this ridiculous amount of money. And, and he needed their help to make this dream, vaca- not a vacation, trip, happen. Right? And he, he promised. He said that God would surely bless you with peace. God will bless you with rest and an abundance of riches for yourself if you help him achieve this trip. Do you buy that? Right? Some of, us, some of us chuckle, but, but some people unfortunately do. Right? Are these messages of ultimate rest and enlightenment that God promises us in His Word? Are these, are these those messages? While a healthy marriage and, and met goals and a really full bank account sound very nice, right? let me remind you what Pascal said. The infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. There are no three points. There are no uh, five steps, no amount of money that will fill this unrest that's in our lives. Right? The Bible tells us a different story, one that we will never be good enough, and, but there is one who is worth trusting. There is one who is better than Moses, who is better and offers a more complete rest than Joshua did to the Israelites as they entered to the promised land in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the only infinite and the only immutable object in existence that offers rest for our weary souls is God himself. So let me ask you, do you find yourself tired? Let's open our Bibles this morning and follow along as we explore God's uh, rest and living in God's rest. This morning in our passage, uh, Hebrews 4, it starts off with a warning. Right? And we are given a warning, and then we are going to explain, uh, we're going to explore the nature of God's rest and the availability of God's rest. What is this nature, and who is it available to? Chapter 4 begins with a warning based on Israel's past failure in the wilderness. Please look with me, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
This may seem a bit confusing, uh, but as we're starting a new chapter here in Hebrews, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of this unfolding story that, that uh, started earlier on. So let's unpack this together. Right? First, we need to figure out who is this us and who is this them right, that the author is identifying. Verse 16 in chapter 3, right before, in the paragraph before ours this morning, helps clarify this. Right? The them that is spoken of are those who left Egypt with Moses. You see, Israel had been given a gospel. They had been given a good news in their time. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery from under Pharaoh, God sent two messengers, right, named Caleb and Joshua, to go check out this promised land that God had given them, right? And they came back heralding <clears throat> a good news. They heralded the good news that, hey, this land of Canaan was theirs for the taking, right? There are already people living in this land, but Caleb and Joshua were so confident, right, in bringing this good news to God's people that they said this. They said, we will surely swallow them up. Taking this land over will be a piece of cake. I mean, that's, that's basically what they, they meant in their language. Taking this over will be a piece of cake. Not because of what we can do, but because of what God has promised. But Israel's response to this good news uh, and, this, and this exciting news was, was really a bit of a buzzkill, right? Verse 2 reminds us that although the good news came to them, the message was useless. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So Caleb and Joshua listened to God. They scouted out the promised land, and they had faith not in themselves but in God, who would help them overcome these obstacles ahead. The Israelites, however, lacked this faith, and they lacked faith in God's ability to deliver them once again. Right? This is actually pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. Right? We're, we are, we're Presbyterians, so there's no need to raise your hand on this one. Um, but I'm going to ask you, how many of you have ever thought, all right, God, all right, God, if you're really up there, right, you've got to help me make ends meet this month. Things are really tight, and I, I, I will trust you if you prove to me that you're up there. Or maybe you found yourself asking this, so God, prove to me that you're real. Right? Prove to me that you're real. My mom is sick, and I just ask that you would you take this cancer away from her, and I'm never going to ask for anything else again. Have you ever just wanted a sign? Just a sign. Maybe it's something a little bit easier, right? A sign, a miracle that God really is who he says he is. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I just, just one sign. If I just saw one sign, I could trust in God. Well, it might sound really good. It doesn't really work out that way. And we've got an example of that here this morning. Let's look at the Israelites. Right? These people really did see the miracles of God, right? They really did see not just one miracle, but one after another, after another, and after another. Right? As God brought uh, the plagues upon Egypt. Right? As God convinced Pharaoh to let him go. They saw God part the Red Sea as they left, and they walked on dry land. These giant waters, these giant walls of water on either side of them just towered above their heads, and they walked on dry land through the Red Sea. And then they turned around, and they saw Pharaoh's men coming after him. And they watched in terror as those waves closed on Pharaoh's soldiers. Moses then led the Israelites into the desert, 
a place with no food, a place with no water. But every single day, God provided just what they needed to eat and to drink. Right? He poured out water from, from rocks, and, and manna fell from heaven. Day after day, these people were able to see God working. They experienced miracles. They experienced God's provision. But now, as they come upon this land that God said, hey, this is yours, eh, they just didn't trust God. They didn't trust a God that had done all these things, these miracles that they had saw, this, this, this amazing God who loved them and protected them and provided for them. They didn't trust that he was able to make this new land thing happen. They weren't trusting that God could provide for them a home. And so it was the consequence. They failed to enter that new land. They simply did not trust that God could provide this home. Many, and I mean, perhaps thousands of Israelites were there. And, and these people believed in God. They actually believed that God is God. But there were only two in this story that trusted, that actually trusted that God could provide rest. Because of this distrust, the Israelites were forced to wander around in the desert for 40 years, right before entering the promised land. And there were only two from this generation who were able to enter that promised land because of that distrust. These two guys, Caleb and Joshua, who did trust in the strength and the provision and the promises of the Lord, were able to enter that rest. The famous pastor, Kent Hughes, says this, We must keep this subtle distinction between belief and trust clear if we are able to understand what kind of faith is really necessary to have rest in this life. Look with me at verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. What? I thought we just learned that living in God's rest was dependent on belief. Right? Belief and trust. The Greek word used for belief here in verse 3 does in fact mean quite a bit more than just belief. In the New Testament uh, context, this word is used over and over again and it carries with itself a really strong implication Right, a strong implication of trust that's usually associated with trust in Christ. And not just this God-man, but this person who uh, will fulfill and has fulfilled the promises of God. We must understand that faith is more than just a belief. Faith offers the act of trust as well. Right, Merely acknowledging that, that Jesus is the Son of God will not give us rest. Trusting in him is what brings rest to the weary soul. Trusting in Christ's sacrificial death begins our rest as we are freed from the guilt of burden of our sins. Trusting in Christ frees us from, from our conscience that constantly nags at us, that tells us, hey, we're not good enough. Trusting in Christ as our Savior removes this guilt and it places the burden not on us but on Jesus Christ who finished that work on the cross. Right? Just as a fussy child who's, who, who's crying can easily fall asleep in its own parents' arms, so too we can find rest in the arms of God. For those of you who might love math um, or, or simple equations, it's, it, it's pretty simple. The more we trust in God, the more rest we are actually going to find in this life. Are you weary? Are you exhausted? Where's your trust? Is it in your own ability to fix things? 
I'm a guy I really love to fix things, whether it's cars or homes or things. Like, I'm, I'm really good at fixing things. But I can't fix this life thing. Is your own ability to fix things in your ability to fix things? Or, um, or maybe it's in your ability to protect those around you. Or do you place your trust in Christ and place that heavy burden on his shoulders? Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a rest for you that we are offered. We've now spent quite a bit of time on on this warning that comes with rest. So let's dive into our next uh, topic that we find in our text, right? This is the nature of God's rest. What is this rest thing? The author of Hebrews is really well versed in Old Testament knowledge. I mean, he, he uses this when writing his letter to the Hebrews. They're Jews, right? And the nature of this rest can be found in verses 3 through 5. Right? It can be a bit confusing, but we're going to try and unpack this. Right? Please take a look with me at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. And as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. The first nature that we discover about rest is, is that it is a divine rest. Right? In, this, in this passage, Psalm 95 is quoted uh, not once but twice. Right? It says, they shall not enter my rest. Instead of focusing on repeating this warning that he gave in our first section, I want you to see whose rest this is. God is saying they shall not enter my rest. This is God's rest, right? It is a divine rest that we are being told is available to us today. And this divine rest is not simply a a good nap while watching golf on a Sunday afternoon, but we're being invited to a rest that God himself is enjoying. This is a special rest that we cannot attain for ourselves. This makes me think of... Um, I finished my college career. I started my college career at Texas A&M. It went all over Texas and Colorado. But I finished my college career at the University of Colorado in Denver. And at that time, it was this weird extension of CU Boulder for people who worked in Denver, uh, in the Denver metro area. And this college uh, attracted a lot of students from the Middle East, Specifically, Saudi Arabia. There were a lot of, a lot of guys uh, from Saudi Arabia. And for those of you who don't know, Saudi holds about a fifth of the world's oil. Uh, right? And it is an extremely wealthy nation. And I had this friend in uh, one of my classes. and Not one of my classes. He was in a lot of my classes. And Abdul um, was a Saudi prince. And you wouldn't know it just by meeting him. He didn't dress fancy. He was just kind of a normal guy that wore ripped jeans and t-shirt and flip-flops. Right? But Abdul was a Saudi prince, and, and, and when you heard of his extravagant vacations, it would just blow your mind. This guy loved cars. He liked cars. Not cars that you and I like, but, but insane cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and these things that we see on TV, but we have never rarely see in person. Right? And, and this guy would pr- fly in his private jet all over the world to drive these fancy cars on some of the world's most glorious roads. Right? About once a month, he would go, and, and one week, he would be uh, driving across the moors in Scotland, and the next week, he'd be in uh, Kazakhstan, driving in the mountains. Um, 
And Abzul stayed in the finest hotels. He didn't just go on these trips and camp in a tent on the side of the road. He'd stay in these really fancy hotels, and he had pictures of these meals. These things would just cover tables. These meals, and for him and a couple of his friends, were meant for a king. And for two years, in class after class after class, I sat next to Abdul. And I sat next to him talking about cars. I like cars, too. We talked about engines. We talked about uh, all these great roads and places to travel. I just had these hopes that maybe, just maybe, I could score an empty seat on his private jet as he, and ride shotgun on his next adventure in one of these fancy cars. I had this hope of joining him on his rest. When God invites us into his rest, it's better than joining my friend Abdul on a week-long drive and a Ferrari across a, uh, a Karamea Highway in New Zealand. Right? God's rest is not something that we can attain on our own. But we are invited to join in his rest. Right? This magnificent fact that we share God's personal rest. It is a magnificent fact. It is the rest that he enjoys. And that should set our hearts racing towards him. The remainder of verse 3 and, and 4 peel back another layer of God's rest. God's rest is a divine rest, but God's rest is also a cosmic rest. Look with me at verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. In Genesis chapter 2, there is, this, there is no morning and evening as, as it was mentioned in the first six days of creation. Right? And the Jews and the early Christians understood this absence of morning and evening to mean that this Sabbath rest still continues to this day. God completed this work in creating the new universe. And on the seventh day, he rested. And he continues to rest. There is this present nature to rest, and we are invited into it. Right? And it's meant to build anticipation. It's meant to build excitement in us. God's rest is not just this far-off concept that we hope to maybe attain one day, but there is this present reality to the splendid offer. The nature of God's rest is one that brings him much joy. And that joy belongs to those who believe and those who trust in him as well. So, so far we've established that uh, God's rest is, is a bit of a serious business, right? For some of the Israelites, it was taken away for their lack of faith. They were not able to enter into the promised land. We've also established that God's rest is uh, a present rest, and it is a cosmic reality, right? It's this amazing offer to those who believe. And now we're going to look at the availability of God's rest. It seems to be this, this great reality, but, but some have been cut off. It doesn't right, seem quite right for our human sensibilities. All right, what's up with that? Verses 6 through 10 argue that this is a present rest that still remains for those who believe today. Look with me, starting in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. These verses, verses 6 through 10, give us this three-part argument for the current availability of God's rest. Right? First, we're given a rather blunt statement about it. Right? Then, then uh, since this letter is written to the Hebrews, right, we are given two more Old Testament appeals about how God provided this rest for his people, for the Israelites, in an earlier time. And I think this is, uh, this is a bit off topic and it's a bit of an aside, but I'd be willing to bet that the author's use of, of, of the Old Testament in this letter is a really good argument for the unity of Scripture. Right? Some, some Christians believe that um, there are different peoples, and, 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 and the people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, and then the people in the New Testament, uh, the church, right, are, are two different people, and God deals with them differently. And then there's some that are outside, completely outside of Orthodox Christianity, outside of, of right beliefs, right, who say that there are actually two gods, right? There's, there's this God of wrath and anger in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament there's this God of joy and a God of peace and a God of love. But I'd argue that Hebrews 4 provides us a glimpse of the redemptive historical narrative woven throughout the entirety of Scripture, right? There's this one God who exhibits both love and wrath. And the rest that God offers through Christ is revealed consistently throughout the Old Testament and the New as one cohesive story. The Bible is one cohesive story. It's not this collection of silly fables. So if you're able to, kind of put this little aside in the back of your pocket as we walk through these next few verses. There's a cohesive story in the Bible. Let us return to this straightforward appeal in verse 6. It says this, Since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. The Israelites who had the good news regarding their entrance into the promised land did not enter into it because of their lack of faith, which led to their disobedience. Right? This statement is, is pretty simple and can be taken at face value. Right? The, the offer of rest still stands for God's people, and the only thing that can prevent one from entering into it is a lack of trust and disobedience. God's promise still remains. It's not something of the past. Now we move on to verse 7, where we return to the, uh, to, to the Old Testament appeals. The author quotes Psalm 95 twice in chapter 3, and then he quotes it here again in chapter 4. It says this, Again, he points a certain day, today, saying, Through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At the time of David, God offers his rest by saying, Today, if you hear his voice. The word today in this and its original language means now. It's a sense of urgency, right? The author of Hebrews is using this to to uh, for his immediate author, uh, for for his immediate audi- immediate audience to recognize that this offer was given to God's people during this time of Moses and Joshua, and it was given to God's people during the time of King David in that era, and the offer of today still stands. The offer of now stands for Hebrews, and it still stands for those of us who believe in 2023. Once again, we're told that this, this offer is a present reality that, that can only be taken away with a hardened and unbelieving and unrepenting heart. 
This disobedience is, is not tolerated by God. And, and there's a massive sense of urgency. Right? Today, today, now is the time of salvation. Right? Benjamin Franklin said that, that do not put off tomorrow what can be done today. Have you ever caught yourself saying that? Right? I, I'm, I'm going to start reading my Bible tomorrow. And that's Friday. Oh, that's the weekend. Monday. Monday I'm going to start. Right? Right, this weekend's really stressful, so so I'm going to get back to eating right, and and, and I'm, man, I'm going to go work out on Monday. Monday is the day, right? I hate being the bearer of bad news, but there's always going to be a tomorrow for you until there's not. The the tone here in our text this morning conveys a sense of urgency, right? Today is the day of salvation, so stop with the excuses. These these things never end. Right? Today is the day to hold fast to the confession of hope that we have in Christ without wavering. Why? Why today? For he who promised is faithful. Today do not put your trust in him off until tomorrow. And the nuances continue in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Right? I'm currently in this joyous but trying time of learning the biblical Greek language for school. And I'm working through it right now with a couple of really close friends, um, some of you sitting in this room today. Um, and I typically stick to making my own flashcards when it comes to school. I like kind of doing everything myself, whether it's working on cars or making flashcards. But with the complexity of the Greek language and all the number of words that I have to use, I finally decided to bite the bullet, pay the $25, and get some flashcards. Some nice, pretty, crisp, clean flashcards. And last night, my lovely daughter Madison um, found my stash of cards, and she decided that it was time to quiz me. A couple years ago, I think it was actually three years ago, uh, was the first time I took Greek, and Madison uh, was just learning the English language. She was learning her alphabet and learning to read and learning to write, and she thought it was the funniest thing in the world that I was learning to read and write in a different language. Right? And so, so the, seeing these flashcards, she's like, okay, it's time to quiz you. So she flashed me this card that reads, Jesus. And I said, I got this. That's Jesus. And she said to me, and? And what? And Joshua, Dad. Right? <laughs> the original name for, for, for Joshua happens to be the name for Jesus. So bear with me now. The Old Testament Jesus, or Joshua, had led his followers to the promised land of Canaan. But that was not real rest. It was merely a shadow, a type. It was merely this example of a, more fu- of a future and more complete rest. So there was a Jesus, son of Nun, Joshua, who failed to lead his people into the rest in Canaan. But now there is Jesus, son of God, who has successfully opened this door for us to enter into God's rest. Jesus Christ is the better, Jesus Christ is the perfect Joshua. And this rest is a rest that remains. Look with me at verse 9. It says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So after God created the heavens and the earth, and, and he's, he, he also rested from his works. Right? And for whoever... Um, so there, huh, let me back up. And this rest is a rest that remains. Right? 
There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and whoever enters God's rest can also rest from his works, as God did from his. Right after God created the heavens and the earth uh, and all that is in them, he did what? He rested from his works. And in a similar manner, uh, right after, after Christ was, was, uh, completed his ministry here on this earth, and we have uh, three years of that that we see in the Gospels, uh, and after three years of striving, God finally says, Jesus finally says on the cross, it is finished. He rests from his work. And so we too can rest from our works. Right? For the wages of sin is death, we are told. And we, in order to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we're kind of given an option. We're given this option to, to uh, as Adam was, to live this perfect life. In the beginning of the Bible, Adam was said, hey, you got this. And they did what God told them not to do. They ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And so likewise, we cannot quite attain by our own good works merit before God. But we too can enter God's rest and find God's rest through a saving faith in someone who did. Through our saving faith in Jesus Christ. That he is who he says he is. And we can enter God's rest and find rest from our works. Christ accomplished what we cannot. Now through belief and through trust in him and trust in his finished works, we are offered a rest. A rest that is very present and a rest that is a future reality for those who have faith. The writer of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to show his readers that we can know and we can trust this offer of God's rest. Right? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's true and it's cause for much joy and celebration. So this morning we, we, we observe that there is a serious warning. There's a serious warning that comes with the rest of God. We have uh, observed that there are several natures to rest. And we've, uh, we've explored that uh, there is a present availability of God's rest. It is today. It is now. So there's no better way to conclude this morning than to look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. At first glance, you might question the use of strive in this verse. One might be led to ask, right, if rest is resting, then why on earth am I striving? Right? Is that kind of confusing? That doesn't, striving doesn't seem very restful. Right? If you're wondering that, you are absolutely correct. Striving is not restful but it does precede rest. God strove for six days before he rested. Christ in his ministry here on earth strove for three years and that we see in the Gospels before he cries, it is finished on the cross. And prior to entering God's rest, we too must strive. What do we have to strive for? We must strive to incorporate not only the hearing of the good news, Right of the offered rest, that, that, but we must have a genuine faith that is grounded in both belief and in trust. Right In the middle of this crazy, uh, wild game of life, we are promised, we are not promised that it's going to be easy. Right? But we are promised that there is a rest. Rest for the weary, rest from fear, rest from our anxieties. 
We're called to believe in something that's not of ourselves, but in the mighty God of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, who provided manna for heaven for his people as they wandered throughout the desert. Right, And even more are we so to believe in the bread of heaven that God has given us, who lived a perfect life that we could not attain on our own. Christ gave his life for us. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And Do we believe that our God is such a God? And there's this matter of trust. Right? This was the deal breaker for the Israelites right? out, uh, who were pulled outside of bondage in Egypt. And trust also plays a role in our text from Hebrews 4. Right? The original audience believed. Right? The original audience of Hebrews believed that God is who he says he was. But amidst the craziness of this life, right? amidst persecution from those who really didn't like them much, um, the immediate audience of Hebrews failed to trust in God, who had been providing for them all along the way. They failed to trust that he was enough to deliver them from their distress just like God's people in the Old Testament. So do you, who may believe, trust that God is enough for you? For there is no rest without trust. Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So can you, will you, trust in him? If so, we are told that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word and scripture. We thank you for your sacrifice and care for your people. Lord, we are fallen. We are silly. We are a people who forget. We are a people who see things right in front of us, yet still struggle to trust. So I ask that you would help us this week. With our trust, might we come to a saving knowledge, a saving belief and trust in you. Amen.